Uh, This morning we are starting a new series in the book of Ruth. And look, in many ways Ruth is quite a simple book. At its heart it's really about just one thing. Hesed. More specifically, I guess you could say Ruth is about the Hesed of Yahweh. Now what does that mean? What's Hesed? Well, Hesed is just a Hebrew word. Uh, There's no direct equivalent in English, but it means something like covenant faithfulness. It means steadfast love. It means loving kindness. And so Ruth is all about the loving kindness, the Hesed of our God Yahweh. So as we work our way through Ruth over the next few weeks, my hope is that over and over again we'll be uh, confronted with and reminded about and comforted by the Hesed of Yahweh. But if that's what Ruth as a whole is all about, this first chapter is really a bit of an anomaly. Because you might have noticed, as Roger just read it for us, when the curtain opens at the beginning of the book, it reveals a scene of famine, a scene of death and grief, a scene where God doesn't seem to be either loving or kind. Which raises the question, how do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when it doesn't look like he's loving or kind? How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when, for example, You've just had a miscarriage. How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when your child decides to turn their back on Jesus? How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when you're told that you no longer have a job? How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when every day you have to deal with chronic pain and fatigue? How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when your marriage is falling apart and there's seemingly nothing you can do to stop it? How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when you receive that news that you've been dreading? News that means that someone you love has only months to live. How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when it looks like God is neither loving nor kind? Well, let's see what Ruth 1 has to say. The narrative of the chapter kind of divides neatly into three parts. There's a departure, an encounter and a return. We'll work through each of those, and you can see that in your outline. And on the way, we'll just keep an eye out for how each of the main characters deals with uh, with God's loving kindness. Let's start with the departure, though. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. In one sense, that's just a fairly standard kind of -of run-of-the-mill introduction that introduces us to some of the main characters, but it's also actually packed with a whole heap of information. For example, did you notice where the story of Ruth is set? We're told it was in Judah, which is in the Promised Land a land God said would be flowing with milk and honey. More specifically than that, though, it's actually in Bethlehem in Judah, and Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so here the story of Ruth is set in the house of bread in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, it just so happens that in Bethlehem there was a man whose name was Elimelech. Now, Elimelech literally means my God is king. So here we have this man whose name means my God is king living in the house of bread 
in the land flowing with milk and honey. The only problem, of course, is there's a famine. There is no bread. There is no milk. There is no honey. So how will Elimelech, this guy whose name means my God is king, how will he deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when it doesn't look like God is being loving or kind? Well, what Elimelech does essentially is he looks for other options. He looks for help in other places. If God can't provide food for whatever reason, he'll go to someone who can. And so Elimelech takes his family and he departs from Bethlehem. He departs from Judah and he goes to the country of Moab. Now look, at this point, admittedly, the text doesn't tell us actually whether what Elimelech did was good or bad. But you've got to wonder, don't you? I mean, here's this guy whose name means my God is king going off to live in a country that clearly doesn't believe that. Here's an Israelite from Bethlehem in Judah leaving the land where God had promised to provide for his people and going to live in a land full of idols. Here's a man taking his two unmarried sons to a land full of Moabite women whom God had strictly forbidden the Israelites to marry. I know the text doesn't say one way or the other, but looking for help in, places where, in other places when God doesn't seem to be loving or kind doesn't seem like a good option, does it? In any case, it turns out that going to Moab didn't work out for Elimelech and his family. Because did you notice what happens next? In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she's left with her two sons. Now that goes all right for a bit. Both boys get married to Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth. But after about 10 years, verse 5, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now I hope that last bit sounded a bit jarring to you, calling her the woman, because it's meant to be jarring. I know the NIV says that Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband, but literally what it says is, the woman was left which is really jarring, particularly given the fact that at the start of the chapter everyone was given names, even Elimelech and Marlon and Kilion, characters who pretty quickly die and play no further part in the story, even they are given names, but here at the end of verse 5 it's just the woman. And I think that's meant to be deliberately jarring so as to draw our attention to the awfulness of what's going on here. It's as though, by this point, Naomi has lost not only her family, but even her own name. It's a kind of symbolic endpoint of her descent into emptiness. She has absolutely nothing left now. She's living in a foreign land. She has no husband, she has no sons, and she doesn't even have a name. Gee, in a book all about the loving kindness of God, it's not a very good start, is it? But at the very least, it again raises the question of how are you supposed to deal with the loving kindness of God when you just can't see it? Well, sometime after this, Naomi hears news that leads to an encounter between her and her two daughters-in-law, an encounter where Orpah and Ruth have to answer that exact question. Let's pick it up from verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now that's actually the first hint so far in the book of Ruth 
of God's loving kindness. Because did you notice, it's not just that the famine had broken in the land, but actually that Yahweh himself had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And when Naomi hears that, when she hears of God's loving kindness, she prepares to go home immediately. She returns to Bethlehem. And we'll think about her return in a few minutes. But for now, what's really interesting is where this news of God's loving kindness places Orpah and Ruth. Because remember, they were Moabite women. They weren't Israelites, and so their experience of Yahweh was quite limited. On the one hand, they heard this news of his loving kindness back in Judah. But on the other hand, all they've seen of Yahweh, all they've experienced of him, is him being neither loving nor kind to Naomi and her family. So what will they do? How will they deal with this truth of God's kindness when they haven't seen or experienced it for themselves? Well, initially at least, they pack their bags and they hit the road back to Judah. And it's while they're on the way that we get to listen in to this encounter, this conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Now they replied in verse 10, No, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi again said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Basically she goes on to say, Look, I'm not going to have any more kids. And even if I did, are you really going to wait around to marry them? And so this time in verse 14, Orpah and Ruth wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So by this point... Orpah's decided to go back to Moab. But what's particularly interesting is the way that Naomi describes Orpah's decision, the way that she interprets it. Have a look in verse 15. She says to Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law Orpah is going back to her people and her gods. So how will Orpah deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when she can't see it? Well, she simply turns her back on Yahweh. And she goes back to the idols of Moab. As far as Orpah is concerned, you see, Yahweh has nothing to offer. He claims to be loving and kind, sure, but have a look around. Look at our circumstances. Elimelech's dead. Marlon's dead. Kilion's dead. Naomi has nothing left. We have nothing left. Yahweh's not loving and kind. And so she completely rejects him. And she goes back to her gods in Moab. What about Ruth? Naomi said to her, verse 15, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Now, friends, don't underestimate how big this is. This is one of the great covenantal phrases of the Old Testament. And it is on the lips of a Moabite woman. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth, a Moabite woman, is committing herself to a covenant relationship with Yahweh and his people. And she's doing it because she knows he is characterised by hesed. She knows that he's characterised by covenant faithfulness. 
by steadfast love, by loving kindness. Despite all appearances, she is certain of his loving kindness. Essentially what she's saying is, even though I can't see it now, I trust and I know that it is true. I trust and I know that Yahweh is good and loving and kind. Now, without giving too much away, by the end of the book, God shows his loving kindness. He proves his loving kindness through Ruth in a spectacular way. And so in a sense, he vindicates her trust in him. I'll have to wait for that for a few weeks. But for now, how do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when he doesn't necessarily seem to be either loving or kind? Well, Orpah, she just rejected him altogether. But Ruth clung to what she knew to be true. And she trusted him and she committed herself to him. Now, when Naomi realised that Ruth wasn't going to give up, when she realised that Ruth was committed to her and to Yahweh, she stopped urging her to go back and together they returned to Judah. Verse 18. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, with the mention of Bethlehem there, we've kind of gone full circle in this chapter. Started out, remember, with Naomi and her family departing from Bethlehem. And it kind of ends here with Naomi physically returning to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. But wow, a lot has changed, hasn't it? Ten years have passed. Naomi has lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she's come back with nothing. And you can't help but think that by the end of the chapter, Naomi is somehow damaged goods. Physically, she's back, but emotionally, spiritually, relationally, she's an absolute wreck. Just have a look at what she says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, that means sweet. Don't call me sweet, she told them. Call me Mara, call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought great misfortune upon me. How do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when you just can't see it at all? Well, I've got to tell you, Naomi doesn't seem to be dealing with it well at all. Now, don't get me wrong. She has had some moments of clarity regarding God's loving kindness. For example, when she heard the way that God had come to the aid of his people and provided food for them, she didn't seem to question it at all. She just prepared to return straight away. But on the way back, it was almost like her attitude flipped completely. She didn't seem interested at all in her daughters-in-law following Yahweh because why would you bother? He's got nothing to offer. Instead, she repeatedly urged them to go back to their gods in Moab, remember? Now, why would she say things like that? Well, it's because, in her own words, she is bitter. And in one sense, you can understand that, can't you? She has lost so much. And she's hurting. And she's angry. And she's harbouring resentment toward Yahweh. And she's bitter. And that bitterness is eating away at her. So much so that when she gets back to Bethlehem, the women didn't even recognise her. Did you notice in verse 19? They said, can this really be Naomi? Is this really the woman who went away ten years ago? She looks so different from that woman who went with her husband and her sons. 
She's old and grey and frail and worn. That's what bitterness does. See, responding with bitterness when your circumstances make it seem like God doesn't care, that is really dangerous. Because bitterness takes you away from God. In fact, bitterness blinds you to the evidences of God's loving kindness. That's what happened to Naomi here. See, she heard that God had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, and she set out to return. And in verse 22, we're told that she arrived just as the barley harvest was beginning. So that she arrived just as the barley harvest was beginning. The barley harvest was the proof of God's loving kindness. It was the evidence of his steadfast love, of his covenant faithfulness. That was how he provided food for his people. If only Naomi had eyes to see, she would have been certain about the hesed of Yahweh. The proof was right there. But sadly, bitterness had blinded her eyes. That's how the chapter ends. We have to come back next week to see what happens next. But for now, as we've worked our way through the chapter this morning, we've kind of caught a glimpse of of at least four different ways of dealing with the truth of God's kindness when you just can't see it. I wonder which one you're most like. Perhaps you're most like Orpah. Perhaps you've already given up on God. You've decided he isn't loving, he isn't kind, he just doesn't care, he has nothing to offer. If that is you, then let me just urge you to watch this space. Because as we work our way through Ruth over the next four weeks, if nothing else, by the end of Ruth, we will have been reminded of God's loving kindness in a spectacular way. So watch this space. Maybe, though, you're more like a Limelech. You know, it's not that you've completely given up on God, it's just that sometimes he seems to need a bit of help, and so sometimes you look for help in other places. And don't get me wrong, maybe that's okay. But gee, when your marriage is on the rocks and the help that you get from the world tells you to do whatever makes you happy, even if that means seeking solace in the arms of another woman, or when you're struggling with loneliness and singleness and the help that you get from the world suggests that you indulge in fantasy and pornography, or when the results of your ultrasound come back and the help that you get from the world tells you you should have an abortion, you've got to wonder, don't you? Looking for help in other places just because God doesn't seem to be loving or kind doesn't seem like a good option. Maybe you're actually a bit like Naomi. Maybe you have lost so much and you are just really hurting. And how could God do that to you if he's loving and kind? Maybe you're harbouring bitterness and anger and resentment toward God. If that's you, then I'm I'm sorry. But you also need to know that you are on very dangerous ground. Because bitterness will do nothing but lead you away from God. Bitterness will blind you to the evidence of God's loving kindness. See, to those who have eyes to see it, the evidence of God's loving kindness, it is all around us all the time. It's in the sun that warms your skin. It's in the gentle rain that makes the grass grow. It's in every breath that you take and every beat of your heart. 
It's in the fact that the earth orbits the sun at just the right distance so as to sustain life. To those who have eyes to see, all those and so many more are evidences of God's loving kindness. Do you see it? Or has bitterness blinded your eyes? There is, of course, another option. And that is that you're like Ruth. Even when it appears as though God isn't loving or kind, you don't lose sight of the fact that he is loving and kind. Like Ruth, you're not worried by circumstances. Like Ruth, you're not swayed by appearances. Like Ruth, you don't let peer pressure dissuade you from the truth. Like Ruth, you hold firmly to the certainty of the loving kindness of God. Now, by the end of this chapter, Ruth had seen God's loving kindness in the barley harvest. By the end of the book, she will have seen it in a far more spectacular way. But friends, for those of us who have eyes to see it, the true evidence of God's loving kindness, the true evidence of his hesed, it is seen in the great, 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 great grandson of, of, of Ruth. The true evidence of God's hesed is seen in the cross of Christ. God demonstrates his hesed for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do you deal with the truth of God's loving kindness when it doesn't look like he's being loving or kind? Well, friends, when your circumstances make it seem like God doesn't love you, when the people around you try and tell you he doesn't care, don't be deceived. Don't be blinded. God has demonstrated his love. Christ has died for us. It is finished. It is done. It is completed. It is certain. And nothing can change that. So when it doesn't look as though God loves you, when it doesn't look as though he's kind, remember this. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the hesed of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Father, life can be hard. And sometimes it can be so hard that we're tempted to think that you don't love us and you don't care. But Father, please protect us from that lie. Remind us of the way that you have shown us your love, your hesed, that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.